Ben Chiarelli, how are you? I am good. It is so nice to finally meet you. And I put meeting quotes because I guess this is how we do it. This is nowadays. it. This is meeting now. Yeah. We're not allowed to talk, touch people anymore. Yeah, uh, I, I'm telling you, everybody that comes to visit our lab now, because we finally started getting people back in, I don't even go for the handshake anymore. I'm just like, can I give you a hug? I, I know we just met, but can I just awkwardly hug you? Because I just want to hug everybody. Yeah. So we're back into it here. Yeah, that is the, uh, I like that too, that that kind of, there's this, there's this very clear separation. One time I went to a, uh, a gold shareholders club and everyone was in these like suits, like very, everyone kind of looked the same. And mm -hmm. some of them had these like shark eyes, like they were, I don't know, these predatory eyes and they all like shook hands and it was very formal. And then you go to the, like these new age entrepreneur meetups and everyone's like hugging and talking about how they want to save the world. And it's like so <laughs> different. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I used to work in that world. I was on Wall Street and everybody wore the same blue and same gray suits every day. Uh, and, and all I could think to my, do you remember that TV show Weeds? Yeah. With the mom? Yeah. All I could think was little boxes on a hillside, little boxes. And that's all I think every time I see those things. Yeah. yeah that was exactly such a good theme song. Yeah. <laughs> when I looked up, um, when I looked up Celebre, is that, is that how you pronounce it? It is. You are the first person ever in the history of the earth to pronounce it properly. So congratulations. You must have taken Latin at some point. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, I'll take the credit. Um, I, I, when I first looked it up, it, it, it directed me to a Hollywood plastic surgery uh, company. And That's the branding we're going for, baby. That's exactly yeah. right. Yep. But we're really riding those coattails <laughs> that I think they're one L instead of two but yeah, yeah. yeah what else? I got that I, I figured that out pretty quickly but I was like oh this is not what I expected I'm uh, telling you literally as a startup founder the hardest thing to do is name your company so that you don't end up getting all screwed up in the google searches with something weird because they're everybody has everything yeah all the cool latin names are taken yeah um I've seen ones now like uh um I guess prometheus which I mean it's it's cool yeah there's some cool ones but like prometheus also got his got his organs eaten out you know like i, I don't know if that's what i would not, want but yeah not great i mean don't get me wrong first generation italian will eat an organ but yeah, yeah. they're good for you yeah yeah very good for you actually so, <laughs> awesome. you're too skinny you must be <laughs> oh skinny what? bones my nonna always <laughs> to say that's right that's right but uh, what does Salibra do so um Super interesting. Can we take it back a step and, yeah. and just talk about how the heck we got here? Yeah. So, um, so I moved out to San Diego in 2014 and I was going to work for, I was going to join the executive team of a company that was trying to solve for the opioid epidemic. And, um, you know, one of the, one of the things that doesn't get talked a lot about is actually the biggest problem in the U S healthcare system is the misuse, underuse, and abuse of prescription medicines. Believe it or not, just forget the societal cost and the health cost and the death cost. Just from a pure dollars perspective, the cost of that is actually larger than cancer and heart disease combined. It is a massive, almost $200 billion a year problem in the hmm. US when you take into account the medicines themselves in the, in the kind of the downstream. So um, it, when I started understanding that, I was like, wow, that's kind of the problem to solve in health. Um, long story long, that company I joined ended up going through some trouble. Uh, I didn't know the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth when I moved out here. Um, but as, as a result of that kind of, uh, that ship kind of taking a turn for the worst, it was in the news kind of here locally. And I got introduced to a couple of just amazing people 
And one of them was a guy by the name of Dr. Craig Venter. And for people who do not know, you can Google Craig. Uh, Craig sequenced the first human genome and announced it with Bill Clinton on national TV back in the late 90s, early 2000s. So Craig is a wildly famous, wildly brilliant, wildly inappropriate scientist. Um, so of course I fell in love. Um, I like everybody who's inappropriate at all times. Um, and I got to meet everything that he was doing and he had, um, everything from this crazy physical where you do a genome sequence and MRIs and heart scans and all of these things to try and figure out what is going on with your body and predict the future to this company called synthetic genomics that he founded back in 2005. And when you think about genome sequencing, that's kind of like reading the book. So if you think about what DNA is, it's the code of life. It instructs for everything that happens in the world. And when we read DNA, we start to understand what the book is telling us. What are the instructions that, that life is giving a certain organism, whether that be a human or a microbe or a plant? And Craig wanted to move from reading the code of life to writing the novel, actually being able to go in and and, and the way to think about it is program the physical world. Instead of programming a computer, program cells and program biology to do really neat things, right? So, you know, as a dopey kid from Pittsburgh, I'm like, wow, that sounds cool. I don't understand a word that just came out of your mouth, but it sounds like it could be interesting, right? Um, and the more I learned, the more fascinated I, I became because, um, you know, I think as humans, when we think about how we interact, not only with one another, but, but more importantly, with ecosystems and with the world around us, um, we have got to find a way to minimize our footprint. And the way to do that, you know, you have people digging lithium out of the ground to build EVs and you have, you know, you have people doing all these crazy things with computers and not talking about how the data centers take up all this energy and all this water. And we just keep making more and more of an impact, but we kind of, you know, push it aside. And right in front of us is literally the most beautiful and elegant manufacturing technology we've ever discovered, Mother Nature. Mm. Um, so that is really at the foundation of what synthetic genomics was doing. They were trying to solve for fossil fuels, and their main program was with biofuels with ExxonMobil. So if you've ever seen an ExxonMobil commercial, either on the web or on, on uh, TV with algae biofuels, that was our old company. Um, so Celebre was really founded out of my coming up with a, the crazy idea uh, of removing agriculture from the cannabis supply chain, being told it's synthetic genomics that we had too much going on and we're not drug dealers next topic. And me <laughs> saying, I just, I'm going to go do this on, on my own. So um, Celebre really was, was founded out of that. And the premise is using biology to make stuff. And, and that's really where it kind of begins and ends. So that's the overview. Happy to dive in anywhere that's Fantastic. interesting. I actually had a podcast the other day with a friend of mine who's a, he's a wizard. He makes these crazy computerized models. And he was talking about this exact topic. Like we have this renewable energy idea in our heads of like, we're going to implement solar power and we're going to implement wind power, but actually it doesn't, it's not that easy. Like batteries are incredibly resource costly and they don't work that well. And solar panels just need way more space than we, we give them credit for. And it's just, it's like we, we would have to sink Essentially, at our current rate of technology and like our current rate of progress, we don't have enough fossil fuels to support a renewable economy in the creation of one. So we really do need like biofuels to get us through this, this little squeeze that we're in. Um, yeah, well, I think the other interesting thing there is, and this is, and this is probably one of the reasons you and I met, 
Um, when people post on things like this, what drives me more crazy than anything else is we never think about how it is going to impact those with the least, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, actually, there's a really interesting book written by a guy named Alex Epstein called The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. Mm -hmm. And I buy this book for literally every single one of my friends that is like super far left, fossil fuels are the worst, ExxonMobil is the devil, we should kill them all. And yeah. I said, just read this book. Because it's... It, it's kind of, I guess, a lesson in, in arguments and debating. If it's an emotional issue for somebody, you're never going to win with baseline facts and science and statistics. You kind of have to take a emotional argument to counterbalance them. And the book does a really nice job of explaining how fossil fuels have increased the quality of life globally almost exponentially in literally everything you could think of. It's like plastics. We see a straw in a turtle's nose and all of a sudden we can't use straws, but without plastics, you don't have healthcare. Yeah. Right. So, you know, we really have to think through these things. And if you want to use an alternative and it's not cheaper, you are killing those with the least. I mean, the like if we think about how gas prices just went up since the beginning of this year, I mean, in California, we're up 50 cents a gallon. Mm -hmm. And some of the folks that work in my community cleaning pools and doing lawns, they're like, yeah, we have to cut down where we work because we can't afford to be driving all around town. We've got to consolidate and just work in our areas, right? And that'll work itself out eventually. Other businesses will pop up, but those people's, those folks had to reduce the cost of their business because of this one simple thing as to where you and I are like, okay, we'll just pay another 50 cents a gallon, right? So I wish we would take that bent to it a little more often than not. And those people are in the top 2% of the world or three or 5% or whatever. Like there's all these other people who, who just can barely afford food and um, their mobile bill and stuff. I mean, it's, it's not, there's this thing about renewables where we can, we can get renewables across the line to support the first world nations, but at the rate of the third world nations growing, we kind of have to like, there's actually kind of an, we would have to keep them stifled. We would have to not let them progress in order to achieve our kind of renewable goals, which I don't think anyone's doing. I don't think anyone's that malicious, but it's just like this, um, it, it's very easy for rich people uh, or comparatively rich people to talk about. And, and that's what's funny too, right? What is rich? Because guess what? The people that are saying they're poor here in the US are pretty wealthy on a yeah. relative basis. You know what I mean? And then it goes to the deeper question of what does rich really mean? Is it a dollar? Is it something more than that? Um, that's a question uh, that rich people often ask, yes. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but the, but the, you know, the, I think the, the fundamental thing is, uh, we all too often just don't even think about it. We yeah. think, oh, well, listen, climate is so bad. If we don't handle it, then all these people aren't going to be here in 20 years. And let's not be hyperbolic about it. That's not going to happen. It's, it's the, the story I love to give because nobody even noticed this. And I don't understand how nobody noticed it. But, and I think humans just in general have a really difficult time recognizing that they kind of don't matter. Like uh, as an individual, you, we kind of don't matter. Um, and, and, what I mean by that is when COVID-19 first hit and the world just shut down and people stayed in their homes, literally within a week, there was no smog in Los Angeles and the canals in Venice were clear with dolphins swimming and jumping in them. And the world was basically like, okay, the humans are gone. Let us take a week. Okay. We're cleaned up. We're kind of good now. Mm -hmm. Right. And it, and it pains us to think about it that way, that the world could literally heal itself 
overnight. It's like in China, if you look at the, at the aerial photography over China over the course of the last 100 years, it was like desolate. There was nothing there. And now you look and it's rainforest. Well, why is that? They made a bunch of CO2 and nature was like, okay, let's make some trees and some plants. Yeah. Let's suck that down, right? Like, and that's the fascinating part to me is we, we spend so much time with our face in a screen or you know, looking into ourselves and looking at all these material things. And we don't take a second to look around us and say, holy crap, is that amazing? I, um, one more I'll give you. I had a guy in here yesterday who's a developer and uh, I was trying to explain to him what we do around, you know, this thesis that biology is a manufacturing technology. And I said, I want you to take a step back for a second and think about this. You eat a banana in the morning and that banana gives your body nutrients. That afternoon you get COVID-19 and for the next week, your body takes the nutrients from those, that banana and manufactures medicine to fight COVID-19 in your body. Like just Think about how insane that is, right? I yeah. mean, it's just nutty, but that's nature. And it's, it's absolutely stunning when you start thinking about it deeply. It's perfect. I mean, it's, and it's not perfect. Nothing's perfect, but it's, it's so intricate in ways that we can't imagine. I did this, um, I did this meditation course for a while. This, it's called the finder's course. And the idea is that um, there are all these people in life who are really happy and, and they're just happy. We don't know why. Well, we kind of know why. Um, but most people kind of have this sadness or this anxiety in their stomach and finders are like always in a really good mood and they're just random pieces of the population. Like they're not all part of a religion or whatever. And some of them are just kind of dickheads. Like they're not all nice or enlightened or whatever. And there's this meditation course where you can kind of become a finder if you want. And part of it is just like, there's this one exercise that I, I still do. And it's looking around the room and looking at the most mundane things and appreciating the deep beauty it's like it's like it's all a work of art made by god for you and gifted to you and so like the way the light bounces off the walls and creates these tiny differences in color is it's like a masterpiece and and just like the body i mean i can appreciate my body as this this engineering marvel that no human has ever come close to creating and it's um yeah, I think that's, that's really helped me in terms of just appreciating the natural. A hundred percent. And it's not even like humans haven't come close to creating, like, how do you create it? Like literally we change every day with our environment, our mm -hmm. genetics change, epigenetics changes with the environment and kind of where we grow up and that gets passed on. I mean, evolution is a stunning thing. And actually, if you want to think about what we really do at Celebre to go back to your original question, it's really accelerating that evolution that's kind of what we're doing, right? Is trying to take this process in nature that could take years or decades or hundreds of years or thousands of years and accelerate it into something that's a little bit more sustainable, which by the way, can go egg-shaped real quick if you don't do it the right way. Yeah, well, that's yeah. what Jurassic Park was all about. Uh, Such a good movie. Um, but actually there's a real life Jurassic Park. Have you heard about, do you know what a gene drive is? No. So you should Google this, gene drive, G-E-N, E, drive, like a hard drive or driving a car, driving a golf ball. Um, effectively, what you can do is you can engineer the DNA of something, put it out into nature and have it impact the DNA of everything else in nature. So there's a company that's actually doing this with mosquitoes, where they can engineer a mosquito, put it out into the population in Florida and poof, all of the mosquitoes are gone. Yeah. That's scary. So they, At the same time, kind of awesome because who likes mosquitoes? But then my point is always like, well, we, do we really know why mosquitoes are here? They probably yeah. have a purpose. And even though we don't truly understand the depth of it, 
probably a reason for it. So like, these are kind of the scary sides of it where people have good intentions and, you know, want to do interesting things, but I don't think we know nearly enough. Another thing that humans are bad at admitting that we yeah, don't I don't, know. I don't think we should be getting rid of mosquitoes. I've always thought this, like, I mean, it would be cool if we could put a gene drive in to uh, make them not carry malaria or something like that. But I mean, there's probably, they probably have a purpose in the ecosystem. I mean, they feed, we know frogs eat them. We know a lot of animals eat them. It would be, I mean, it's, it's just like in Australia, um, which is where I live, they, they introduced, they had all the sugar cane. And so they introduced these, uh, there are these cane beetles on the sugar cane. And so what they did was they put a cane beetle on a table and then they got this, uh, I think it was a Brazilian cane toad on the table and the cane toad ate the cane beetle. So they were like, perfect. So they introduced all these cane toads into Australia. And it turns out that these cane toads are giant fat shits and the cane beetles are all the way up here and they can't eat them. They don't eat them. And they're also highly poisonous. Nothing can eat the cane toads. And so all they've done is they've bred and they're fucking everywhere now. Like, Northern Australia, they're, they're cut. You walk out in your backyard and there's cane toads. And the worst part is they're not even scared of you. They barely move. All they do is sit there and wait to get hit by cars. They're the worst. And then, uh, and now we have, and it's like, we didn't think, we didn't, there's this idea of like, um, we don't think of the, the after on effects. We think of the first series of, of effects, but we don't think of like the second and third series of, of effects that might happen. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah back to our original of, we hurt poor people every single time we do something, yeah. right? Because we're thinking about those initial kind of primary react action reactions. And we're not thinking about the secondary and tertiary ramifications. Um, but I'm super happy that Australia has more of something that's poisonous. That's great. <laughs> yeah, really literally, I don't know how you live there. Everything wants to kill you. I don't, I could never do it. I, I went to Hawaii um, a, a little while back and actually they had a similar problem because the Spaniards, the island of Kauai, they brought chickens and literally like you're laying on the beach and you're just surrounded by chickens within wild five minutes. I, yeah, there's wild chickens everywhere on Kauai. Uh, but I met a guy who was marrying a young lady from Australia and he was like, I'm scared to death. He was like, on Hawaii, nothing bothers you. He's like, the worst thing that could happen is like a coconut falls out of the tree and hits your head. He was like, I was going to the bathroom, a little too much information, but there was a spider on the wall and I went to get a paper towel to kill the spider. And my fiance was like, yeah, don't touch that. That's the second most poisonous spider on the oh, island. No. And I was like, what the, because I was just hanging out with that thing for five minutes while I was in the bathroom for crying out loud. So I don't know how you do it. I couldn't live there. They Beautiful, mostly leave but, you alone. Yeah, They mostly leave you alone. I mean, I, you know, you go for bushwalks and like, I mean, my my uh, my partner's family owns a farm and like an alpaca farm, and then there's just these like crazy snakes that you see sometimes, and they're like, oh, you're like, oh, that one could kill you if it bit you. I mean, people don't die very much, but I mean, you might lose a leg. You know, you'll get to the hospital in time. But listen, you might... you, you are not killing me. I I live in San Diego, Southern California, so like surfing is a big thing here, and some of my friends have tried to get me into surfing. One, uh, I'm too unathletic. I tear an ACL in like four seconds. But secondly. I've seen Shark Week. Like, I, I understand the statistics, but like, I'm just not doing it. I won't even go in a swimming pool if there's too many leaves. Like, if I'm in an aquatic environment, I need to know what's going on around me. And I, yeah, Australia is too scary for me. Yeah, too the scary. shark attack statistics are interesting because they talk about like, oh, six people in the world, but it's like, okay, but how many of those people are surfing? And now how many of those people are surfing every single day? Like, yeah. that, that's, that, that's when it narrows down. Yeah, I'm sure every surfer who's like hardcore kind of knows someone. I'm not, I don't, know. I don't really know. Yeah, sure. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. I won't even go close to the beach, to be honest with you. I've seen Sharknado too. You just never know. 
there's something about there's something about cars that seems so harmless like you're piloting this missile going 80 miles an hour or not 80 i was thinking 80 kilometers like 100 kilometers an hour down the road and if you hit a tree you're instantly dead but a shark it looks terrifying it has these teeth and it it just has these eyes and cars don't have those Maybe like they're at a like they're at a gold convention or something those <laughs> sharks that's right exactly the same uh um now i won't be invited to future gold conventions but that's fine because they were terrible it was was (laughs) i don't know you might want to be involved in it given where the world is going i feel like that's the only thing that's going to be worth anything in a couple of years yeah i bought some gold yeah uh because warren buffett got bought some gold and i was like oh that that seems like a good investment i mean i i personally think the economy is going to go to shit in like i don't know i don't know how long but I'm, I'm kind of shorting the economy somewhat. By, uh... Here's the issue. It's all relative. So you would have to, if everybody's crapping the bed, then everybody really can't crap the bed, right? I mean, it's all kind of relative. You have to have some countries doing better, some countries doing worse. Mm-hmm. And I think we're all kind of a shit show. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't see anybody really doing it the right way, except for maybe some small European countries. But everybody else is just printing money, shutting people down. It's nutty. It's nutty. The whole thing is crazy. I just want to move to a farm in Montana and be done with it. I mm. think once I'm done That's with this true. whole thing. You might, you might find a really cheap farm pretty soon. Yeah, maybe. Who knows? <laughs> find who some half price deals there uh, go. with all the foreclosures. But uh, uh, who knows? So, so Libra, what, is, what, do you, uh, what do you make exactly? Like what? Yeah, so let me, let me tell you. Yeah, let me tell you how this works. It's, it's very, very interesting. So um, first, food technology is like the most interesting space right now. And actually- I'm going to plug a friend's book because it's right here. My friend Jack Abobo wrote this book called Why Smart People Make Bad Food Choices. And it's kind of on the psychology of food, but it's also really, um, it's like a really great look into how human beings think across a variety of issues, but it's kind of focused around food, but you can, you can pull out tidbits. And a lot of people don't know this, but food labeling is one of the strangest things on the planet. Like why we label food certain ways literally depends on the production process. And there are multiple production processes that can be labeled natural, organic, vegan, kosher, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so in where, where we ended up taking the technology to found Salibre, and, and this is not the basis of our company, it's just the first app. So really, you know, if you take a step back and you think about, uh, and I'll get back to the labeling thing in a second. If you think about biology as a manufacturing technology, which is kind of where we started, your body makes medicines for COVID, the flowers outside make beautiful fragrances and beautiful colors. Think about a cell as like a manufacturing facility. It's like a building. And in that building, there are a bunch of assembly lines. And all of those assembly lines take nutrients and then turn those nutrients into stuff. So the flower is taking nutrients from the soil, water, sunlight, and manufacturing colors and fragrances. And every single cell on the planet does this. So we came across this crazy industry called cannabis. And I'll be honest, I had to go get a coffee before we started this because caffeine is my only vice. I don't drink wine. I don't smoke anything. I, I'm just not, that's not my phenotype uh, anymore. And I just, you know, don't do it. So I was a little trepidatious, but I started studying the plant. And, I, and here in San Diego, we actually had the world's foremost therapeutic company that had the world's first FDA approved cannabis derived medicine for childhood seizures called GW pharmaceuticals. Mm -hmm. And I got introduced to their executive team. And I got to go look at this 
look at all their data. What were they studying this plant for? What, what were they doing? And I came out of that meeting and I called my partner in crime, Spiros, our CTO. And I said, Spiros, holy shit, the stoners were right. This plant cures everything. I can't believe what I just looked at. They had data, everything from what you would expect, pain, anxiety, but also data in diabetes and data in glioblastoma, the most deadly form of brain cancer. And I was just stunned. Now, the issue is, if you think about the cell as a manufacturing facility, that cannabis cell has 400 assembly lines, and it is not very good at regulating those nutrients to the right assembly lines. Mm -hmm. So one time you may get a lot of this molecule called CBD that I'm sure everybody's familiar with. And then another time you might get a lot of this molecule called limamine, which is this interesting terpenoid. And then the next time you may get a lot of this molecule called THC, that's going to get you a little bit loopy and euphoric, right? And there's 400 of these chemicals in the cannabis plant, and it's never the same. So we said to ourselves, um, do we think smoking a plant into your lungs is the best way to consume this medicine? I'm going to go with no. I think the tobacco industry has done a fine job of telling us smoking plants into your lungs isn't good. Mm -hmm. Um, So can we consume it in different ways? And I think the answer is yes. We're seeing beverages, patches, you know, even consuming into your lung, vape pens, pills, all kinds of different form factors. So what we do at Celebre is we take that cannabis cell and we go in and I say, okay, I want the assembly line just for CBD. And I pop it out of the cannabis plant and we move it over to a cell like yeast. So think about a brewery, like, a, like any brewery that you've ever been in. And we put out that assembly line in a yeast cell, and then we feed that yeast sugar water in a big fermentation tank, like any brewery you've ever been in. But instead of beer coming out the back end, comes pure natural CBD from sugar. So we remove the need for the plant completely from the supply chain. And what's cool about this is literally almost everything. So number one, back to the food labeling. Believe it or not, if you go and read what constitutes a natural label, in there it says a fermented product using yeast. So our products, even though we never touch a plant, will be labeled natural. And if you've seen these products like Beyond Meat and Impossible Burgers, these plant-based meat products, They use pea protein, and in their process of turning that pea protein into a meat uh, substitute, they have a ton of byproduct, and in that byproduct is sugar, and they use organic peas. So believe it or not, I could feed my cells the waste streams from an Impossible Burger, and my products will be labeled organic and will never touch a plant. And this is the crazy way that food labeling works. So people are like, oh, Ben, you're making synthetic cannabinoids and those are terrible. And I say, no, 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 no. We're going to be labeled natural, vegan, kosher, organic, right? And, and a good proxy for this is our CSO actually developed the cell that was the version 1.0 cell for a big ingredient company to make fish oil, actually one half of a DHA. So if you take DHA in anything, your milk, your vitamins, a fish oil tablet, more than likely it didn't come from fish. It came from a vat in the middle of Iowa from a fermented algae. So this is the way a ton of ingredients are made and people, people don't even know about it. But where you really start to get into the cool implications of it <clears throat> is when you start looking at the business side of the equation. So to grow a cannabis plant takes somewhere between three and four months, sometimes shorter if you use some new technologies, and then you harvest the plant. Mm-hmm. And like I said, 
what that plant produces is all over the place. The THC content is never the same. The CBD content is never the same. The chemistry in that plant is always different. Which is why and, if you have like THC, on, if the label says like it's 25% THC, you can guess it's like within 10%, you know, it's, it's, it could be 15, it's not 35, but like you don't really it's, know. The it's pretty wrong. bad. And that's a, that's a great point before I go to the rest of it. Do we really think when we have federal legalization that regulators are going to be okay with that? Like if Jack Daniels said, hey, our alcohol is somewhere between 15% and 23% by volume have at it. Like, is yeah. that going to go well? I don't think so, right? Like it's it's going to end badly um, to your point on the scary cars getting scarier. So, um, you know, I think that's, that's a, a really big one. And we make things precise. We only take the CBD assembly line. So our cells only make CBD. They don't make anything else. And we can do it for all 400 chemicals. So we basically deconstruct the plant into its individual components and then allow brands and innovators to recombine them in whatever constitution they want. So the labeling is a really, really important one. The consistency is a really, really important one. But the big one is cost. And right now, if you wanted to get CBD isolate, hemp is free in the United States. We had a bunch of farmers who were going out of business because they switched to hemp. So you could get CBD isolate as low as three or $400 a kilogram per kilogram of CBD isolate. That's probably going to work its way back up to like a thousand bucks over the course of the next 18 months. Um, but any other molecule sells for anywhere between 5,000 and 75,000 a kilogram. So if you think about back to our original statement of, are you thinking about the people with the least? Do you think the coal miner or the person who worked on the auto manufacturing facility can afford a hundred dollar bottle of CBD or a $50 bottle of CBD? Like no way. And that cost is just way too expensive. So when we scale our technology, we will be able to drive the cost of any of these molecules, not just CBD, but an interesting one like CBN, which is used for sleep and currently costs $10,000 a kilogram, or one like THCV, which has been shown to be helpful in diabetes and in appetite suppression. Yeah. That one sells for $50,000, $50,000 a kilogram. We'll be able to make them all for less than 100 bucks a kilo at scale. And then- you know, one of the things we talked a little bit about sustainability, and I get a lot of founders who come to me with their sustainability idea, and here's what I'm going to do to save the planet. And what I always tell them is like, okay, that's a great idea. How do you get it to market to actually make a difference? Like you could have a very sustainable idea, but unless you have a product that is being consumed, that is replacing something that is worse, your impact on the environment is effectively zero. So you've got to be better. You've got to be cheaper. You've got to be more convenient or some combination of those, of those things, right? So here we're more convenient because instead of four months to grow a plant, our fermentations are every six days. So we can scale up and down very, very quickly for all of our customers. Number two, we're cheaper by a 10th to a 1,000th of the cost of what it would cost to get you these things from the plant. Um, and then ultimately it's better because it's higher quality. It's consistent. It's the same every single time. You don't have no, no pesticides, no heavy metals, no anything. So we're kind of checking the box on the three things that matter to get it to market. And then the crazy part is, and I had no idea about this, and this is in the U S only in the U S growing one kilogram of cannabis flour is the equivalent of drying feeding your car around for, for a complete year from a greenhouse gas perspective. Wow. So when you actually do the math on how much cannabis is produced in the U.S., if you replace the cannabis process with our process, it would literally be the equivalent of put, taking 15 million cars off the road mm. from a greenhouse gas perspective. And this is just app one. 
of interesting things that you can make via fermentation with cells. Um, so that's kind of what we do that's and why. Incredible. I've, uh, I've, I've dreamt of the day that something like this would happen. Cause I, I used to make those little, um, oil, like CO2 cartridges. So like, uh, I don't know, people, people are, I think people are really scared of them right now because, um, a bunch of people have lung issues, but those lung issues are because people put like vitamin E oil in the, anyway, it's not, it Number was a, it was a lot of it was a lot of bad manufacturing and the industry still has that there's a molecule called delta oh. 8 right now and delta 10 yeah. where they're chemically synthesizing derivatives of thc and literally selling them in gas stations to children and mm -hmm. we don't know anything about this stuff and that's the industry i find myself in always you know and some of us are just trying to do things the right way right so um so yeah i think you're going to it's going to be super interesting here's the other thing is those oils are tough to work with, right? Yeah. You have plant oils and fats and chloroplasts yeah. and all these things. Our product is a white powder. Mm. That's what yeah. CBD is. Like if you ever see pure CBD or pure THC or pure CBN, it's a white powder. Mm. And then you can formulate that in a whole host of different reasons, including those pens, by the way. Yeah. Oh no, that's, I was like, I always wondered, you know, could I get, I was, I was looking up back in the day, like a few years ago when I was working on this, like whether I can get like THCV and then put it into the, into the, into the oil. But yep. obviously it was, a, I was a little ahead of my time, but uh, yeah. what I do wonder is, I mean, what really worries me about like current technology, and I guess it, we're kind of in this like weird wild west stage of cannabis is like, I, I saw so many flavors that people would use like pineapple flavor for your oil. And then you would look at it um, and it would say, don't heat up past a certain point, which you are definitely heating it up past a certain point. So like mm -hmm. even a lot of the oils that are being used in, uh, I don't know, common cannabis products are like probably giving you cancer. They're probably not good for you in the slightest. And, um, yeah. everything gives you cancer, by the way, you can yeah, literally everything. do a statistical study that anything in excess will give you cancer. Um, but what's really interesting is any thought, anytime you were heating something up to put into your lungs, yeah. you are almost by definition, making aromatic compounds that are not good for you. It yeah. doesn't matter what they are. If you're heating them up and putting them into your lungs, it's not going to be good for you. Mm -hmm. So there are always going to be better ways to consume these things, whether it's beverages or edibles or patches or whatever it may be. Um, there's always going to be better ways. Not to say that people shouldn't smoke if they want to smoke. It's your body, do whatever you want. Yeah. Um, but there's always going to be healthier ways to kind of consume this stuff. I, I, the beverages are fascinating to me. But what's really cool is to your point on the flavors, a lot of people in cannabis talk about this idea of an entourage effect, of that all these things work together beautifully. This is an example of where nature doesn't do things beautifully. Actually, the cannabis plant doesn't need any of these cannabinoids like THC or CBD to survive. It's just kind of there. And, and actually we think it was a genetic modification by nature millions of years ago. We don't even think it belongs in the plant. Um, but what's really fascinating is number one, the entourage effect is nonsense because it just makes things at such varying concentrations that there's no way that different chemistry is providing you the same efficacy. We really don't understand what works together well and what doesn't work together well. Yeah. We do know that there's some synergy, but we don't really understand it fully. Um, but where it becomes very cool for me is what happens when we start combining things with natural terpenes and flavonoids that are outside of the cannabis plant. So terpenes are kind of ubiquitous. 
And, and limamine is a, the one I mentioned earlier is actually a great example. That's in the cannabis plant, but it's also in orange peels. It's also in citrus. It's also in, you know, call it 12 to 14 other plants that we know of. Um, so what happens when you're able to start mixing those cannabinoids with other natural products and start really understanding what that efficacy is? I think that's where it becomes super interesting. We're a natural products company. I want to make amazing natural products, but do it in a way where we're not screwing the earth over and kind of leaving it alone. You know, yeah. that's, that's our, well, our view of the world. What I kind of wonder though, is like, um, I wonder if, if severely imbalancing the, like, let's say you created a, a, a cannabis type, I don't know, a cannabis oil that was kind of mm -hmm. a, a recreation of normal cannabis, but it had like 20 times more THCV or something, which is commonly found in really small amounts. Mm -hmm. I, I kind of wonder like, are we smarter than we are wise here? Are we, uh, is shifting these levels going to be a good idea? And are we kind of experimenting with people's health in this way? So we're always experimenting with people's health. That's how we drive better healthcare. Um, but what I would say, I'd go the exact opposite of that. I'd say, how crazy is it that humans have the hubris to think that the cannabis plant is there for their health and the concentrations of things that the cannabis plant makes is for human beings consumption? Like the hubris in that is just crazy. And we, we think like that all the time, right? As human beings, we think, oh, well, nature did this, so it's perfect for us. The, and actually in Jack's book on the food psychology, he writes about this greatly. People think, when you say the word natural, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Plants and green and- Good for you, happy, wonderful. You know what else is natural? COVID-19 and Ebola. I don't know about COVID-19. <laughs> Well, maybe not COVID-19. John Stewart did do a good job of telling us that the name of the virus was on the building. But, um, but, Ebola, but Ebola. Ebola, natural, right? But you, people don't think about their eyes bleeding when you say the word natural because yeah. the food companies have done a really nice job of marketing. But so, okay, just, just straw manning or just steel manning the yeah. other side, trying to at least. Uh, the ones that killed us, we didn't keep breeding. And so we, we know that um, we, we probably uh, created a cannabis plant that was at least somewhat or at least wasn't killing us actively. Uh, and I'm not saying if you increase THCV, it's going to kill you immediately or anything like that. But we kind of did choose what was better for us, for our goals. Ooh, well, for our goals there, you got the statement yeah. right there. Yeah. Um, if you go look at the history of cannabis. So first of all, um, I don't know about Australia, but in the United States, if you did a genome sequence of the cannabis that's here in the United States, 70 to 90% of it is one plant, one genus that has been bred an infinite number of times to create all these strains. They're all from the same plant and they've all been bred. And they've been bred to do what? Get you high. Get you high and increase THC. So we've kind of equated now, by the way, like if you go to Thailand and get the stuff that is literally out there in nature, it is nowhere close yeah. <laughs> to the THC levels that we have today, right? So, um, 100% humans will be able to manipulate things to get to a desired outcome. And in cannabis, that desired outcome has been, let's pump the THC content and just allow people to escape reality. Yeah. Right? You, you look at, okay. You look at like a bud of weed and it says on the packet, 25% THC, what kind of plant creates 25, a quarter of this plant is just THC crystals that do nothing for the plant. Like yeah. that's insane. That's one not that natural. has, yeah. It's one that has been uh, I'll be controversial with my language. One that's been genetically modified through breeding. Yeah, yeah. 
right? Um, so, and, and actually your point on the, on what the labels mean, we actually are right down the street from the first, the store with the first recreational license to sell cannabis in the state of California. It's called Tori Holistics. It's this little tiny store. It's in a terrible location and they kick everybody's ass because everybody kind of comes to the quote unquote OG. So we'll go, I'll go down there every once in a while. And we have the equipment to actually test this stuff in our lab. And we will go and buy a product that says 21% THC and we'll test it. And approximately 0.0% of those products are 21% THC. They're all over the map. And the issue is, is number one, the plant is never going to be the same, but number two, it changes while it's on the shelf. Like that chemistry changes over time. It is not shelf stable. It, the industry is in for a rude away. They keep wanting federal legalization. And I keep saying, you guys have clearly never been regulated before because here it comes and it's not fun. It's a, it's a weekly colonoscopy that is going to end badly for a lot of folks. Yeah. Not, not to mention that the, uh, the actual companies are changing <laughs> the percentages themselves. I mean, there are, there are practices that I heard of, like our company never did, but they would, they would, uh, you would hear about like, oh, you can pay them a thousand dollars for every percentage you want added to your THC. And like, you can just do that. I don't know if they still do it. I think that was kind of back in the, in the medical days. But like- no, there was just a big article about the THC testing here in the United States. It's a disaster. If you have a subscription service with these labs or you subscribe to it, you're, you are amazingly consistent and at the right levels that you want to be. That's amazing. Just Incredible. some science. It's just science. Okay. <laughs> it's just science. I promise. Yeah. I yeah. So, yeah. Um, I also saw that your your company it said napkins. You, What's that? Yeah, uh, celebre. I oh thought- no no no! That's a phrase that I use and people hate it. From napkin to commercial is probably what you read, and um okay. and that's kind of our team. And when I say napkin, what I mean is we were sitting around the restaurant drawing on a napkin and coming with up with ideas. Got so it. What the, yeah, what that what that really means is that our team. So the DHA oil example is a great is a great one. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but DHA oil is if you took all of the clinical trials and all of the products that want to use DHA oil, we would need three earths to produce it all. That's how much demand there is for, for DHA oil. Um, and, and also interestingly, when we talk about cannabis, I actually think humans are kind of boring. I actually think animals are the most interesting market for cannabinoids and specifically livestock, not even uh, not even companion animals, but companion Why? animals are cool too. Um, oh, we can get into that. Um, but for DHA oil, just to go back to that real quick, 75% of it goes to animals, 25% mm-hmm. goes to humans. And we went from literally zero, not knowing how to make DHA oil on a fermentation to full-scale commercialization with Archer's Daniel Midland in 18 months, right? You so said, kind of- You said-, you said um three earths worth of oil. Would that be three earths that you've completely overfished? Overfished, used fermentation. You'd yeah. need three earths to, yeah. to okay. meet it all. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty crazy. 18 months. That, that really, uh, that really puts things in perspective because I think a lot of people have this idea that like, oh, we've kind of maxed out technology. Like it's never true, but it's like, we don't know where to go from here, but actually you, you, you um, invented this incredible process that kind of saves millions upon millions of fish in the world in like 18 months. Yeah. I don't want to say that I did because I'm not nearly smart enough. I'm just a dopey business guy, but our chief scientific officer certainly did that. Um, and we're doing the, the same thing in cannabis. I mean, we started the company, we opened up our lab in September of 2019 
And then uh, you may have heard of it, COVID-19 happened, this little pandemic. So literally we've like only been in operation during the craziness, right? Um, And we're going to commercial on our first product this year, early next year, right? And from literally zero. And that just shows you, and it's not because, you know, we're brilliant, although I think the squad over there is absolutely brilliant. It's because technology is accelerating at a pace that is just crazy, especially when you think about biology, because compute speed is one thing, but genomics is actually moving at an infinitely faster rate than Mm -hmm. compute speed because it's combining compute with our understanding of biology. And both of those things are moving fast. When you put them together, you just get a big acceleration of what we do understand and what we can and cannot do. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's very, very interesting what's happening in kind of the field of biotech and and biology as a manufacturing technology. But back to livestock, I'm going to tell you a great story. I talked to a dairy farmer and this dairy farmer basically was like, Ben, I want to invest in all the CBD socks, stocks on the stock market. And I was like, first of all, I don't know what that means. And I said, secondly, I'm not providing you financial advice, but please do tell me what's going on. And he said, Ben, he goes, I had this neighbor and he goes, his neighbor had a dog. And he goes, that damn dog sat on the porch. He goes, I thought the thing was stuffed. I thought it was dead. I'd never saw in years. I haven't seen the thing move. Just sat on the porch. He goes, I woke up one morning, I had damn dogs running around my yard like a crazy person, pooping everywhere, dogs running around. So he goes, so I called up my neighbor. I said, hey, he goes, I thought that dog was stuffed. That thing's alive. He goes, he's running around. He goes, yeah. He goes, I started feeding him the CBD. And he goes, you mean cannabis? And the guy goes, no, no, no. He goes, it's from hemp. It doesn't get you high. He goes, my dog's like a puppy now. So this guy's, huh, wonder what'll happen with my heifers if I gave them a little CBD. So he had these dairy cows that were off to pasture. And he goes, Ben, I'll be damned. He goes, I start giving these things some CBD. And he goes, if two or three months go by, and he goes, those gals ain't dancing around like ballerinas out there, like their newborn cat. He goes, I couldn't believe it. He goes, so I ran a little experiment. He goes, I took a couple of these cows off to the side. He goes, I start feeding them the CBD. A couple months later, he goes, they're producing milk like you would not believe. And more than likely what it is, is you're lowering the anxiety of those animals and you're also lowering the pain threshold and therefore they are producing more milk. So there's, you know, anecdotal, there's no studies done here. I'm not telling all dairy farmers to please go give your cow CBD, but I'm just telling you that to me is fascinating because for us, our business is all about scale and our costs are all about scale. So if I am able to use animals to increase my scale, then that coal miner in West Virginia is going to have much cheaper CBD to help with their back pain. Right. Mm. So, um, so to me, animals are super interesting because a big old cow is going to need to consume a lot more CBD than dopey you or dopey me would be able to. Right. Mm. So, um, you know, the animal market is super interesting for cannabinoids. I've heard stories like that too. My friend, uh, my friend has a dog who barks all the time and she feeds it CBD and it's it just, she just is way more chill and, and pleasant yeah. to be around. You have to be careful with dogs though, because if, if dogs consume THC in too high quantities, they actually have seizures. So this goes back to the consistency problem is when we talk to the large animal health companies, like the big pet food producers, they basically said, we won't touch anything from the plant because we cannot have trace amounts of those other cannabinoids in there because these animals metabolize them very differently than humans. And it can be pretty harmful. So that's another reason we're excited is we literally are only taking the assembly line for CBD. So we have no risk of making these other things, especially for, you know, markets like animal health, where that's important. Incredible. What, uh, what stage is your company in right now? Are you still, so, uh, 
uh, asking for funding or what's so we are we are right now actually about to close on a series a um we are we are uh are we're gonna raise i think an eight million dollar series a may go a little bit above that we'll see um, and it's being led by a company called Merida Capital Partners. Um, and Merida is one of the, if not the leading cannabis investment firm. So one of the difficulties for us is we're taking, and I knew this going into it, I knew it was going to be terrible. I, I'm envious of all these people who can raise money um, really quickly from investors because they're not taking what is probably the world's most sophisticated science and then pairing it something that's literally illegal everywhere. Um, so we, we're pretty constrained on kind of who we can talk to. Um, so we're super excited to have Merida along board. They're, they're brilliant. Um, they push us really hard. They're great partners, amazing communicators. I mean, came to us and we're like, let's do the deal terms together. Like we want you guys to be happy. I mean, it was just a fantastic process. So we're currently raising that series A um, documents just got done this week on all the legal mumbo jumbo. So we're hopeful to close that by the end of August and then get rocking and rolling. So we're at our series A, um, not many series A biotechs are going commercial, but we should go commercial off of this, right? Peter Thiel talks about the world of uh, atoms and bits. And have you read zero to one? Yeah, yeah, it's... Uh, Oh, right there. Good. <laughs> it's one of my favorites. But um, yeah, he talks about how uh, so many people are working in this world of bits, and like we're we're creating all these computer programs and all this software, and it's constantly changing. But like, not a lot of people are working in the physical world, making new things, and there's so much potential there. There's just there's so much yet to be exploited. A hundred. But the reason people aren't working on it is the infinite complexity that's associated with it, right? Um, if you think about bits as ones and zeros, nature is A's, C's, T's, and G's. And the addition of two more variables in your code is actually really, really hard. Let me, get, I'll give you a great story. I sat, when I was at Synthetic Genomics working for Craig, uh, I sat next to another member of the executive team named Dr. Dan Gibson. And Dan actually has a TED talk um, that I would suggest everybody go walk, watch. He's, he's fabulous and brilliant. And Dan worked on something called the synthetic cell, where they basically just took a cell with no genome and base pair by base pair, wrote a genome synthetically, popped it in the cell and then booted it up like a computer and created the first ever synthetic life form. The cell divided, it thrived, it lived. Um, and if you think about what life is, right? Life is survival and procreation. Those yeah, are the two yeah. things we're all trying to do while we're here. You could say all the rest of it, but those are the two, right? And this cell was able to both live and procreate. So it was the first ever synthetic life form. They did that in 2005, big nature paper, amazing science. Then um, I won't ask you how old you are, but I will date you by asking you, you're how old? 27. And I'm 67. 27? <laughs> My gosh. You're, you're not going to remember this, but other people may remember this. Back in the day when we had these computers that were big old things with big screens and the monitors weren't this thin, we had to do something called defragging your computer. Oh, and yeah. What, yeah. yeah. So yeah. If, you, if you go and Google it, you'll see what this does. You like defrag your computer and it gets rid of all the crap that your computer doesn't need, like all this cache memory stuff that you didn't need. And then it kind of puts everything together that works together so your computer can access it more quickly, right? Um, so Dan actually defragged that synthetic cell. He took out all of the things that were not required for survival and procreation, and he minimized it and got rid of the junk. And then he put all the things that functioned together together, 
right? In that cell. So he defragged it. They did this work in 2010 and they called it the minimal cell. And their belief was that this was the minimal viable product for life, that this was the, the simplest that a, that a critter could get. Wow. Guess how much of that genome we understood and knew what it did? No idea. Uh, 10%. Half of it. And, we, and Dan literally built it from scratch. So he built it from scratch and only could understand what half of it did. And how now- did you, all How would you build something that you don't, if you don't understand how it works? So you just take, you know, you take from nature, you look at all these sequences of these organisms and you kind of see what is working, what is working across all of these, right? Kind of what is the minimal viable product? It's a lot of iteration. I mean, that's a really, 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 really kind of basic research. Um, and the thesis behind it, by the way, there was a business case for it. The business case was if we come to this minimal cell, we can then use all of the excess hard drive or the excess capacity in that cell to literally program it to make CBD or to make DHA oil or to make fuels and use this one basis, right? That was the thesis. Um, doesn't really work that way in real life, um, but that was kind of the, the basic science uh, business rationale for it. Um, but you kind of look at nature and you say, okay, here's a bacteria, here's a bacteria, here's a bacteria. Oh, they all have this stuff in common. So that must be required. And then you start taking things out right? To say, okay, no way, maybe we really don't need that. Um, but what's fascinating to me is that little critter, we only knew what half of it meant. And now all of a sudden, we think we're smart enough to sequence a human genome and understand disease, right? Like, no way. We don't have a clue what's going on out here, right? Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of, you know, to, to, to the Peter quote on, on, Atoms and atoms and bits. The reason we're not going to atoms is atoms are hard mm. and they require a lot of money and a lot of time. And as you know, we humans have become very impatient. Mm. Oh, absolutely. So. Everything's very quick nowadays. Yeah. Um, are you are you interested in the VR space at all? Because I, I just bought an Oculus Quest and it's incredible. And I'm yeah, like, I, I think so, I need to like invest in some VR companies. Yeah. So I, I actually posted on this the other day on LinkedIn and, you know, as I'm, as I'm looking at all the things like where money is going and what people are doing and, you know, all the people that kind of robbed people in cannabis and were crooks and shysters now are moving into psychedelics. And there are some very good companies doing things in psychedelics, but you see like these same names moving over. Um, but there's a guy uh, named Christian who was the founder of a company called Atai Biosciences with actually Peter Thiel. Uh, and they're doing very, very cool things with a guy named Brian Johnson, um, Brian with a Y. Brian founded a company called Kernel that's doing kind of brain computer interfaces, yeah. but non-invasive, has a helmet. He's working with a company called Cybin on trying to understand why, how psychedelics work. Um, and the more I started looking at all this stuff, the more I realized that all of the innovation that we're doing is actually not to kind of improve our reality it's to improve how the hell we escape from it mm. and that's sad to me right I, I feel like that is kind of where we're going um and that's and and by the way i'm probably a minority in this and it probably doesn't matter but like the second nintendo went to a third button i was done like that was too complicated for me i wasn't spending time on it like i'm just gonna go play some basketball you know i so um so you I, know I, I yes i would say yes but i, I think it depends on how you use the VR system. Like I got a VR so I could exercise more and now I'm, I'm doing like VR boxing. And I would be, I would love to see something like a VR rock climbing gym where you have 
rock climbing and then maybe you shoot lasers at your friends and or like I don't know VR stadiums where you do sports but with like cool lasers or magic or whatever like it's it's just like social media it depends I mean social media is really helpful for people who decide to use it in a way that will help them prosper and grow and it's terrible for people who just sit there on TikTok and watch videos I mean it's it's kind of it's like it's like money it gives you power uh but you can decide to use the power however you want in in good or bad ways yeah it's a really good point i i talked to my buddy um guy named mark weinstein uh who's now unfortunately most famous for the fire festival and the netflix documentary um mark actually got brought in to try and like turn that thing around and make sure nobody got hurt oh he was the smart guy he was the guy he's the he's the adorably handsome guy with the hair bun yeah. Was he, he the guy who was like, uh, we we don't have enough toilets? And then the, the owner was like, I only want to hear good news. <laughs> yeah, well, Mark was Mark got brought in because Mark used to run a thing called 90s Fest here in the United States. It was like a 90s conference. Sold it, did, did pretty well on it. Um, but he got a call from somebody and they're like, Are you, hey, this fire festival, do you know about it? Mark's like, yeah, I got my ticket. Like Mark's a, you know, Mark's a burning man all the time. Some in LA, like he's, he's going all that stuff all the time. He's very trendy. Um, and he was like, yeah, of course I'm coming to fire. And they were like, any chance you can get here sooner? Cause it's a bit of a shit show and we need somebody who knows what the hell they're doing. And it didn't come across in the Netflix special, but he said, Ben, the second I landed, I was like, holy shit, how do we turn the planes around? Like people are, people are going to get severely hurt. Like this is a mess. And he spent his entire time trying to like charter planes and charter boats to get people the F off the Island oh, good. Um, the, the entire time. Right. Um, and, and he, uh, you know, he's, he is, um, he's very into all this technology stuff. He had to give me an education on these NFT things. Cause I'm just like, God almighty, oh, yeah. how are you spending money on this? But I was talking to him the other day and, uh, and, and he said, he said to me, like, you're always like responsive to people. And when people ask you for things, you're always doing it. And like, I, he's like, I don't understand how you find the time. Like you're supposed to be running a business. Like, how are you responding to people? And uh, my response to him was, I don't have TikTok and I don't have Instagram. Like the, the three hours you spend a day on that crap, I spend talking to human beings. Mm. And that talking might be responding to some uh, company from India who wants to offer me SEO services, whatever the hell those are. Um, but I'll respond to them and I'll say, no, I don't have interest. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. No interest. Uh, I actually don't want anybody to find me on the Google. Um, you know, but I'll respond. Uh, and, and I find that to be much more interesting. Like, I, I don't know. I, and, and I'm probably a weirdo in that regard, but I, um, you know, I just don't consume myself with that stuff. And I understand why it's attractive to people. Right. I think it comes back to actually something you said earlier, where there are these people that just have kind of an innate happiness to them. Um, and I also think you mentioned the meditation. I think just life can cause that to happen. Right. I lost a brother in 2001, um, and I always wasn't a happy go lucky person, but I, that kind of kicked me in the hind end to say, you have a legacy to leave for your father's name. You're eventually going to have kids to leave a legacy for their name. Life can literally end in a second. Like what, what are you upset about? Like, why are you stressing? What's the big deal? Like literally what's the worst thing that could happen to you? Um, and it's not death, right? Like, you know, in, in any situation. So I would say I was never the happiest person. I'm probably a miserable person. You know, I was, I was a goofball when I was a kid, but now I just really don't stress about those things. And I, and I think because of that, I have no interest in kind of escaping the reality. Like this is fun for me, right? Whatever it might be. So. Wow. 
what happened after that after uh after 2001 what kind of trajectory did you go on in your life yeah so i graduated undergrad with a 2.7 grade point average i was a terrible student i spent most of my time i went to undergrad at case western reserve university in a city called cleveland ohio um it's not really famous for this, but I'm from Pittsburgh and we have a bit of a rivalry. So I always say Cleveland is famous for being the only city in the world where their major body of water caught on fire, not once, but twice. Um, it's a crap hole. It's gotten really nice. Sorry, Cleveland. I hate Cleveland. Yeah, It's a crap hole. Um, I became, I actually, everybody there is an Ohio State Buckeyes fan. And I became a Michigan fan who's their rival completely out of spite. Um, that's how I make my best decisions. I feel. Yeah. You went there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I just went straight there. So yeah. Yeah. So I literally, when my brother passed away, first and foremost, shout out to like the most amazing friends in undergrad. Um, I came back after two weeks because I was, we were in the middle of school, middle of our basketball season. Um, I was done for the rest of the basketball season. I kind of quit college basketball at that point. Um, cause that was kind of my brother and I's whole life. But when I came back, my, my dorm room was clean. All of my laundry was done. Literally every subject had the homework done, the assignments done, the reading done notes on everything. Like my friends did all of my stuff. Right. Um, and, and clearly it wasn't mine because it was done correctly and neatly. <laughs> like it was, it was very well done. And like, I'm going to turn this in and nobody's going to give a shit. Um, but from there, it was really hard. It was a hard two years. I just kind of, I did the escape from reality thing, right? I was playing basketball in the hood, only white kid there, you know, down in East Cleveland, four hours a day. I was just, I wasn't going to class. I wasn't doing anything. I just had no interest, right? I was just trying to get through the education because number one, I was an engineering major and I knew sitting in front of a computer doing engineering, probably not going to be my bailiwick. Uh, But number two, I just kind of wanted to get through it and and be done with it. And it wasn't until I kind of moved back home, got into the real world, started spending you know, more time with family that I realized, you know, I'm now an only child and it's my job to kind of carry on the legacy. And that kind of kicked me in the hind end a little bit. And then I went to graduate school and, um, you know, graduated with close to a 4.0 and in graduate school, uh, not because I was smarter than everybody there. I was probably the dumbest kid at, at Carnegie Mellon, but, um, you know, just worked my hind end off because, you know, it wasn't for me. It wasn't about me anymore. So I think that's kind of what, what, uh, what drove me in that direction. And then to this point of, you know, we as humans don't really matter, right? Like if I was gone tomorrow, the world would keep turning and and nobody would really know the difference. But the only way you can truly, truly make an impact in a really broad sense is either you become a billionaire because you have created something that has improved the quality of life at scale. Like I hate that people are yelling at Jeff Bezos for going into space. Like the dude literally has improved billions of lives at scale right? Made products cheaper, more accessible, easier to get, blah, 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 blah. Like good for him. Good for him. Let him do whatever the hell he wants from here on out. I don't think I'm going to be Jeff Bezos. So the only way for me to make an impact is to say, can I touch hundreds or thousands of people in a slightly positive way? Mm. Um, and whether it's helping them within, with, with some little task, or it's introducing them to someone and introducing two people who never may have met had it not been for me, um, that's kind of where like all of my passion lies. I just love that. Um, and that's how I'm, I'm trying to make my little difference, right? And I think that's all we can do. And they scale, right? There's always a ripple effect. Like you help someone out, you help someone grow. Like when the people around you grow, then everything kind of gets better. It's like- uh, yeah. It's so funny. My friend Jack that wrote the book, 
um, the Why Smart People Make Bad Food Choices book. I, I make intros for him all the time because when people are interested in food, I'm like, you need to talk to Jack A. Bobo. He's the, he's the best. And he emails me back and he's like, how the hell do you meet all these people? Like <laughs> I, I've introduced him to some pretty famous people. And he was like, how does this dopey kid from Pittsburgh who is not wealthy meet all these people? And I was like, Jack, I'll tell you, I am nice to people and I don't ask them for anything ever. Like all these people were being asked for shit all the time. And I'm never going to ask them for anything because I don't want anything for anybody else. Right. Um, but that's pretty cool that you can take like these two people who are super smart, who never would have met each other and they meet each other and they do cool things together. So that's yeah. a good, that's a good strategy. Be, be nice to people and never ask them for anything. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then when you do ask them for something, believe it or not, they'll actually do it. Yeah. Right. Like if you actually do need them, they'll do something for you, but I'd rather not be in that debt. I'd rather always have a surplus of kind of good karma out there with as many people as I could possibly meet. So. You seem like a, like a, I mean, obviously you're kind of a hyper connector too. Like there's always, you know, every, every one in a few hundred people, there's like that one person who just knows everyone and they're constantly talking. Like yeah. uh, my partner, Elliot's like that. He's a, um, he's a meditator and he, he, so he just knows, but he just, he runs like discord servers and he just is constantly reaching out and talking to people. And uh yeah just it's mostly in the meditation community and stuff like that but it's like oh yeah you're like the uh you're like the place where everyone goes when they want to meet someone that's yeah yeah and i do it to my detriment by the way like i so and and by the way not on purpose like it's so funny i'll be pitching celebre when i'm out raising a series a and like midway through the pitch i'm talking about three other people's companies not mine and then i'm connecting the investor them i have one family office right now that told us that they would like to write a, a fairly significant check into us and i'm hoping they come on board cuz i really really like these guys um but they also want to do these other things in the cannabis space and i'm literally connecting them with you know big companies like ease and small companies here and investors over here and i'm like these guys are going to deploy all of their money before like my round is even ready to go like i just realized i'm kind of introducing everybody you know, it is what it is, right? I, you know, I, and I told them I would, you know, the relationship is just infinitely more important to me than a dollar, right? And, and that's just the way I think we should view everything, but, you know. Hmm. So, well, one more question I have is, uh, what, like, you're, you're the founder of Celebre, that's correct? Are you yes. a co-founder? Yeah, whatever. Um, co-founder. So there's, there's four of us. Um, one guy named Scott is our COO, CFO. Scott was actually an analyst of mine when I was on Wall Street. He was the lowly guy at the bottom of the totem pole that did all of the actual work that I subsequently then took credit for. Oh yeah. Um, so Scott has been with me a, a long, long time uh, and is a great partner. And then from a scientific perspective, uh, we have Nikki Kayasa, who's our chief scientific officer, literally one of the most brilliant people I've ever met. Um, and equally as brilliant, uh, but a little more, a, a very, very different way of thinking is our CTO, Spiros Kambarakis. Spiros is Greek. Um, and I'll say this in public. You told me we were going to edit things. Don't edit this. We have one racist policy at Celebre, and that is we have a maximum capacity of one Greek person. There are no more Greeks allowed <laughs> in the company. So if you're Greek and you're going to apply, don't bother because we are full on the Greeks. So, mom has um, made more baklava than we can eat. We don't need there any it is. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Uh, I kid, of course, please don't yell at me. Um, but yeah, so, uh, so there are four of us that are, that are co-founders. We do a pretty good, co pretty big co-founding group. And, it, you know, lucky for us, you know, I was coming from the guy who sequenced the first human genome. And I forgot to mention Craig's co-founder was a guy named Ham Smith. And Ham won a little thing called the Nobel Prize in 1976. Oh, I've heard of so, those. 
Yeah. So we were, we needless to say, the scientific organization that we were coming from was pretty darn good. So I kind of got to handpick who we brought with us. Um, and we picked people for both brilliance and culture. Cause uh, you know, like for instance, during COVID we, as a co-founders, we sat everybody down and we were like, if this is totally up to you, no one is smart enough to know what the hell's going on right now. If you are anxious, nervous at all, just stay home for a year. We will pay you. Like, we're not going to fire anybody. You do what you need to do. You guys take care of your own families. We will figure it out. Um, and everybody came in every day. And I think a lot of it is because we have a really good coffee machine, yeah. as we already discussed before getting on. It's critical. What, critical. Is, what is your like day-to-day -day role as, a, as the founder? Yeah, God. Um, so it shouldn't be what it is, but um, you know, one of the big problems, and this is in tech and in biotech, a lot of times companies go more way too quickly into scaling up the business side of the equation versus hiring engineers. So Scott and I made a commitment to Nikki and Spiros very early on that we would do all of the bullshit and not hire anybody so that we could literally spend every dollar on science. So we don't have a bookkeeper. We don't have a legal department. We don't have an HR department. We don't have any of that stuff. It's literally Scott and I, and then 12 scientists, PhD level on down. And we are post series A going to hire eight or nine more people. And they're all going to be scientists. So our kind of engineer to business ratio is way kind of skewed toward the science, which um, is a nightmare for like, I hate tedious tasks, but like Scott and I have to do the QuickBooks and we have to do all the NDA reviews and like all of those things in partnership with some outside folks. Um, but as the, as the CEO of an early stage company, you really have two main objectives. One is to set the culture and directive and kind of be accountable uh, for, for what the business is doing. And then two, as I call it, sit in the front of the bus and anytime the tank needs to fill, get out and fill the tank. Mm -hmm. So right now I'm trying to fill the tank. We need, we need money. We're doing a raise. My job is to fill the tank. And then you just kind of get the hell out of the way and let smart people do smart things. Um, so, you know, that's, that's really what it's all about to me. And, you know, as an example, um, since day one, we've had an unlimited vacation policy. So we don't have holidays. We don't have vacation days. We don't track you. If life happens, just text somebody, let them know and do your thing, right? That's a nightmare from a manager's perspective, right? Like you could randomly have half of your lab just out of the office if people take advantage of it. So making sure that you hire the right people who understand what's going on culturally, give a shit about the gal to their left and the guy to their right um, is super critical. And then managing that is hard. So if you have someone who needs to be out for a couple of days and you have stuff that needs to get done, being able to manage that is really difficult. And it's put a lot of strain, I think, on the, on the folks who have to, have to manage the teams. But at the same time, like good luck finding another job that has this much flexibility. Like good luck finding a job where you're going to have this much fun, where we can joke around and, you know, have a good time while we do cool stuff. So, you know, from my perspective, it was really all about finding a place where the work was super cool. The work was actually going to make a difference, but you actually kind of wanted to be there, right? Mm -hmm. Like driving into the office wasn't a, oh, it's Monday. It's, it's Monday time to get back at it. Right. Like Monday's my favorite. I love Mondays. So the dream job. I mean, it's not a dream job because you're doing QuickBooks all day, but um, oh, mine is a nightmare, but I get to, I get to see these super like, it, it's funny, I, I talk with investors and our investors are not biotech investors. And uh, I actually just had a young lady the other day we did a call with. Um, and, and I said, and the main partner got off and she was one of the more junior kind of analysts. And I said, guys, if you want to hang for a little bit, I'm happy, you know, I give a 
extra half hour on the end of all these things. I'm happy to chat about, you know, whatever you want to chat about or answer any of my questions. And she goes, Ben, I have to say, and she goes, this isn't blowing smoke. She goes, you must have done this a lot because you are really good at explaining this to dumb people because <laughs> I think I actually understand what the, you were just talking about, right? Um, and the only way that I can do that is if you have smart people who help you to understand it so that you could translate it in, in that way, right? So um, I think that's the coolest thing, right? Just getting to meet people who are infinitely smarter than you doing very, very cool things and just sucking it all in. That's the coolest part of the job by far. Yeah. Surrounding yourself with people who are just so smart. Like, oh, it's the best. And like the environment yeah. is amazing. You're just constantly growing in that environment. Yeah. Well, there are things growing. They're usually cells. And actually our, our head of fermentation said something funny yet the other day. Literally, when we grow these cells, there's millions of them, right? And every week we run a new fermentation. So every week those cells are getting axed. And he was like, I feel like Joseph Stalin. Like it's an inappropriate thing to say, but like I'm killing so many things every week. He goes, it's starting to to hurt me mentally because <laughs> those are little living organisms. Why uh, are you growing them and then killing them? Because they're not so, quite right. Oh, they're never quite. Nature is never quite right. So it's, mm -hmm. it's so it's very cool when you put when you take an assembly line. You know, I call it an assembly line. Technically, it's called a pathway, and that pathway consists of these little robots or machines called enzymes. And those enzymes do chemical reactions. They're yeah. either converting a chemical or putting two chemicals together. This happens in the cannabis plant. It happens in our cells. When you put them into an environment they don't normally belong in, sometimes your cells just don't work. Sometimes they start making something they shouldn't make and you have to re-engineer them, those enzymes, or you have to put the pathway in a different order, or you have to do certain things to the cell to make them actually allow those machines to work. So it's a really iterative process. So every week we're running fermentation. So at the beginning, we put the we put all the machinery in and our, we're, our first product is CBG as in GOAT. Um, and you, it, we have to make it because it's the mother cannabinoid. It's the cannabinoid from which all the rest are made. So that's the first kind of part of the pathway or the assembly line that you put in. Our cells didn't make any of it. And then three months in, oh, we saw a little bit of it in a fermentation tank. That cell's interesting. What is it doing? And then you try and understand it. And then we go, and then at the end of the last year, we were at what's called one gram per liter, meaning for every gram, for every liter of fermentation we have, we make one gram of CBG. And now we're approaching double that. Um, so over time, it gets better and better and better. And as your little cell factories get better and better and better, your product gets cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Um, and that's kind of the iterative process you do with engineering biology as a manufacturing tech, is you try and consistently improve it until the dollars you need to improve it no longer make sense from a return perspective. And then you kind of stop. But we're far from that. You initially, I, I was like, oh, it's just like brewing beer. You put the yeast in with the sugar and then it, and then it makes beer. And yeah, but first you got to make that cell work. And it's funny because I, you know, I talk about it like an assembly line and I'm like, think about it as a manufacturing facility and there's assembly line and you put in robots and these robots work and everybody starts thinking about a car manufacturing facility that they've seen on YouTube. The only difference is that cell's a living organism. And when you tend to mess with mother nature, it wants to kick you in the groin, right? It doesn't like that. So like literally cells could just die. Like, so your manufacturing just doesn't work, right? So it's, it's such sophisticated science and it is so, so difficult. Um, and it's infinitely more complex than most things that we try and deal with from a technology perspective, uh, which makes the work number one fascinating, but also just so much more impressive what these guys and gals are doing, not only here, but at some of our competitors. I mean, some of our competitors are doing great work. There's a publicly traded company called Amaris 
that's doing great work in this. There's a big public company called Kronos that has a partnership with a company called Ginkgo Bioworks. Which is a terrifying name, Kronos. Yeah. One who ate all of his Her children. That's, yeah. that's cool. All right, fair enough. Too Bye. much, too much, too much mythology. I told you, I got a Spiros. We're not going anywhere close. <laughs> not even flying, not even flying. No, we're not even looking at the sun. Forget it. Forget it. Um, <laughs> so uh, here's a good question that I, I learned from Tim Ferriss. It's what do most founders do, even the really successful ones, incorrectly? Like what is something that they commonly overlook or something? Uh, I'll tell you what founders do incorrectly. But the, because they do this incorrectly, it's the reason they're successful. And that is they think they can achieve things. Mm. And they think they can achieve things way too quickly. So when you talk to we crazy people, we're like, we're going to do that. Of course, we're going to do that. We'll do it in six months. We'll see you in six months. We'll be done with that. And then you don't realize that what you're trying to do is infinitely more complex and takes infinitely more time and takes infinitely more money. And, uh, and, and, and it never really works. So I would say, you know, what the truly, really, really good founders that I have met in my life, ones that have succeeded and ones that have failed, all, and, and by the way, when they fail, they always go do the next thing because they're always kind of building and tinkering and, and wanting, to, wanting to create, right? A lot like you with, with music, right? I mean, I, I, would, I think it's a very, very similar thing, right? You have these ideas in your head and they're kind of flowing around and you know, how you put those down onto paper and then to instrument is the same for us putting them down on paper and then putting them into a cell, right? It's, it's, it's a lot of art. It's a lot of science. Um, but you kind of have to be audacious, right? And, and think about it. You're saying, hey, I'm going to create a song that people are going to sing, people are going to love, people are going to dance to. Like, yeah. think about the hubris in that right? That, that people are going to like what the heck you do, right? Artists, same way. Like, um, and, and you're confident in it, right? Like, you know, like, that. yeah, of course this is going to work. Why wouldn't this work? Of course it is. Um, and I think that's the biggest mistake a lot of us make is we kind of get ahead of ourselves because we have this confidence and this belief that what we are trying to do is going to be successful. And there's literally nothing that's going to stop it from being successful. Hmm. Yeah, this, uh, I guess it's, I wonder if like, if you tested founders' self-esteem, I wonder if you'd find that they have an overwhelmingly high level of self-esteem or something like that. Or an overwhelmingly high degree of confidence in the people that they're working with. So I would say that my, I am not, my confidence in Celebre, you know, people talk to me and they're like, Ben, you're so nice. Like I couldn't imagine you in a competitive environment. I mean, I'll be really nice to my competitor, but like I'll Terry Tate somebody. And that's a great reference. If you don't know who Terry Tate, the office linebacker is, you need to Google immediately after this and then write me an email and thank me later. Okay. But I will form tackle a competitor. I have no problem with that. Like I'm here to win, right? But my confidence in us winning has literally zero to do with me. It has everything to do with Nikki and Spiros and the teams that they've built, right? So my confidence isn't necessarily confidence in self. It's confidence in, in team. And I am overwhelmingly confident in kind of what they do every day. So I would say it's probably a mixture of both, right? Wow. And um, are you are you the one who primarily, I mean, I could, I'm assuming that you're the one who primarily goes out and gets funding because- yeah. So we came up with this idea and Nikki and Spiros were like, okay, so we're going to quit our jobs. Let's do it. And I was like, guys, we are going to raise money for crazy science in an area that's federally illegal. Like, I don't even know who can give us money, right? Like, so we went all the way to committee. And when you're raising money, 
there's a process where you go through, you do an initial meeting. And if people think it are interesting, they start digging in and they do diligence around your numbers and around your science and around your approach and all this stuff. And then once you get through all of that, um, you know, what I always tell people is an investor's job is to say no. They're trying to say no to as many things as possible. And if they don't come up with a reason to say no, that's when you get an investment, right? Mm. So when you get through all that and they don't have a reason to say no, you go to something that's called committee and you go to the committee and you present to the larger partnership. And then after that presentation and that Q&A and they get to interact with you, the partner basically says, hey, I want to do this deal. Let's talk about why any of you don't think we should do it. We went all the way to committee with one of the top five venture capital firms in the world. They were going to write us a very big check, literally with just 13 pages and no team. They were like, so do you guys all work there? I was like, nope, everybody else sells a job. I'm the only one Um, because we knew it was going to be hard. And they ended up passing and they ended up passing mostly because of headline risk. Uh, thank God, one of the partners, a young lady who, um, I won't mention any of this because I don't know how much of this I can talk about, um, but she is a, she is literally a stud, like one of the most impressive people I've ever met. She calls me and she goes, bad news. And I said, what? And she goes, the men in my firm have no balls. Is what she <laughs> told me. And I was like, I was like, this is the best pass I've ever gotten in my life. Like, that's hilarious. Um, so I ended up passing, but she ended up helping us. And she ended up literally on our behalf, talking to cannabis investors and saying, these guys are legit. So if you buy into this, like we had the, one of the foremost universities, their entire bioengineering department, give these guys the colonoscopy on the diligence and they know what the hell they're doing. Um, you know, got our sign off. And literally because of her, we got our seed round done. I don't think any cannabis investors would have given us money. And then from there, it's an execution thing, right? It's, we told you we were going to do X. Did we do X or did we do X minus 10 or X plus 10? And luckily, Nikki and Spears are great at what they do. Their teams are awesome. And we've been knocking it out of the park from what we told people we would do, right? So, you know, I did most of the funding, but, um, you know, these things always seem like, um, you know, they're so easy. And oh my God, look at him. He got his thing done and blah, blah, blah. I was unemployed for 19 months trying to get this off the ground. I was two months away from being out of money and having to sell my house, right? Back to our earlier conversation, like big whoop-de-doo, Ben, you have a nice house and like you live in Southern California, like how hard could your life be? Like that's not a big deal in the grand scheme of humanity and, you know, struggles that other people have, but this shit is not easy. And you have to have kind of the again, you have to have this kind of hubris of, of course, this is going to work. Like, of course, we're going to get funding. Like, why would I ever stop? Right. And we got it done. Like it very easily could have gone the other way, could have very easily gone sideways. Um, but you know, we ended up getting it done. We got our, got our raise on, we have an amazing team and that, that was kind of it. So I, you know, again, my job is to fill up the gas tank, to raise, raise the capital on the back of great data and great science that, that the team does. And then, try and keep the culture a little bit happy, right? Make sure that people actually enjoy being around one another and enjoy being here. And other than that, you know, do some accounting and some legal. That's the, yeah. the gist of it. So hmm. That's so yeah. important too, culture. They say employees will leave, a, leave or stay the company because of their manager, not necessarily because of the company itself. It's a hundred percent true. I, you know, I, I can tell you that every job I've ever left was exactly because of that. It wasn't because of the people I worked with. It wasn't because of the company mission. It wasn't because of anything other than I didn't trust the people who I was reporting into. And I just didn't, I didn't really enjoy them. So that mm -hmm. makes it really difficult to go in every day and work your tail off for someone who doesn't seem like they give a shit about what you got going on.
right? Um, and I can tell you that we just genuinely care about people, right? It's not, hey, we want to keep you here or, hey, we're, we're trying to create this fake culture so we can go on Instagram and talk about how wonderful we are. Like, we don't even do any of that crap, right? I just genuinely want people to be happy. And, you know, I have people come in here who are like, Ben, I got a, like a job offer from another company. And I'm like, that's awesome. Is it a lot of money? Do you like the company? Like, I'll be a reference. Like, I'll, let me help you, right? Like, if somebody wanted to leave tomorrow, awesome. Like, who am I? What am I? You know, it's like these non-competes and all these things, like we have to do them, but like, I'm never going to enforce that crap. Like human beings should be free to have the path that they want to have. And if you truly give a shit, support the hell out of them. Yeah. Right. And I think that's probably why we haven't lost one person since we started, <laughs> like literally no one has left because they come in and they're like, oh, what do you think of X, Y, and Z? I'm like, oh, it's great. Go ahead and go for it. Let's, let's, let me be helpful to you. Right. Um, and, you know, maybe that's stupid of me, but you know, I, the, a, a person's life is so much bigger than a company or, or, or any, you know, quote unquote mission, you know, just try and help that individual find their path to happy, right. As quickly as possible. Yeah. Wow. You're just raking in the good karma. I can see, I can see where the success comes from. It's all karma. <laughs> I think so. Although I don't understand you guys, like the meditation and all that stuff. I could never do it. People are like, Ben, you should meditate. It would be good for you. And I'm like, there's a 0% chance that I, like, I just, I don't have the phenotype to be able to turn it off. I, I'd be scared to death to turn off. I'd never want to turn it off. I love being on. Hmm. I couldn't do it. I don't meditate that much personally. My partner, he, he meditates yeah. hours a day. Uh, I think meditation, uh, I think people meditate sometimes without realizing it. I think you can watch your thoughts in, in a lot of ways and just kind of watch where your train of thought is going. And that is a form of meditation rather than just like sitting and trying to focus constantly. Um, Interesting. Or just appreciating like living in the moment, like being in the present moment, not like going back into the past and going into the future and, and all these different thoughts, like just not having so much of an inner voice and concentrating on the present is a form of meditation. Like I, I, there's, there's a million ways to meditate. I don't, I don't think yeah. it needs to be this prescribed thing. Hmm. All right, I think I'm going to let you go. I uh, uh, I love this. Oh, we talked for a long time, gal. I know it just flew by. <laughs> that was so fun. Yeah. Well, I'm so excited that you and I got to to meet each other here. Um, yeah. and like I said before we got on today, um, everybody should be following you because you spit out some real pearls and some real gems, and I I find you to be a fascinating and wonderful person. I'm so happy for our random connection. Um, I will never come to Australia because as we already discussed, I'm scared to death of everything that's there. Um, but if you ever find yourself coming to Southern California, I want you to hit me up so that we can break bread, have a meal um, and, and do some proper intros. And I'll show you what it's like to ferment cannabinoids. I would love to. <laughs> that sounds amazing. When COVID awesome. ends, I'll be there. Awesome. Well, yeah, it was so nice. You have an amazing weekend and thank you so much for doing this. Thank you.